Good morning. Oh, it's good to be here. I thought I'd try out Tim's setup today and, and see, if, uh, see if I like this. Feels good. Feels good. Um, <laughs> uh, we're, you know, I'm really excited to be here. I'm really excited about what God has for us today and what, what's been happening amongst us. Uh, it's interesting to watch a video about missionaries. It kind of reminds me uh, about where we came from. I'm, I'm the youth pastor, Drew Donovan, and uh, we've uh, just recently come back from New Zealand in September. And we spent the last eight years of our lives as missionaries there, and it was uh, such an amazing time. So I'm very happy uh, that our church is continuing to support the work of missions. It's such an awesome thing. So family, the ideal family, as Tim uh, put it very eloquently last week, this should make you puke, right? <laughs> you know, because it's a sarcastic title, isn't it? It's not. There is no such thing as ideal. Ideal kind of implies that it's all, we, it's all one kind of way, that there's one way to do family and there's this one ideal and it's perfect and, and everything works great if you follow this kind of simple little formula. But that's not the way family works. Um, in fact, he, he suggested that the title and the real title of this series should be, How Do I Deal With My Real Family? I like that, right? Yeah, it's good. How do I deal with my real family? Now, I think my family's pretty ideal, you know. I, um, well, at least my uh, my family here in Moncton. I, I could go on some crazy stories about my extended family, but as Tim said, we won't because this goes online and uh, they might find out. Um, I don't even I don't even know if I want them to hear what I just said, but. Um, not many of them are going to listen to me, so that's good. Um, the fact is, our families are, are an interesting journey of life together. And there's no one path, and there's no one simple ideal. But there are ways to deal with our real families. And so today I'm going to tackle that, that concept uh, about actually an ideal way to interact with family. An ideal way to interact with family. And we're going to look at kind of a monster of scripture. And I say that because um, it's not a scripture that I tackle lightly. In fact, this is the very first time I've ever used this as a text in, in, in its entirety. Um, and you'll see why in just a few minutes. It's kind of, I, I, it's kind of a little bit of a, of a difficult one to tackle. And anytime you preach on family, you're kind, of, you're kind of getting into scary waters. Because, you know, like I do, nobody likes you to tell you how to run your home. You don't like, we don't love it when people start telling us how to live our lives um, at home. We care uh, we, about how we do it, but, you know kind of mind your own business when it comes to family life. But Paul is an idealist. Paul is an idealist. And we looked at Ephesians last week um, when Tim preached to us. And, and we're going to continue to look into Ephesians. And he actually paints a picture of the ideal way that a family can interact with one another. And he takes very serious the call to holiness. So I'm going to get into a little bit of, of holiness talk this morning. And I want you to know that we may never reach an ideal. But holiness is possible in our lives and in our homes. Amen? Did you catch that? Holiness is possible in our homes and in our lives. If, I, if we don't believe that as a church, then I'm working at the wrong church. I'm, I believe that holiness has to be possible or I'm in the wrong business. 
Um, in fact, one of the things that excites me about our faith is that we believe that God can and will remove the sin from our lives and forgive us completely and help us to walk in obedience. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited. And Paul is an idealist, and, and Paul is uh, one of the authors of, our, of, of much of the New Testament. And he believes, as we do, that God would not ask us to be holy as he is holy if he could not do it. God wouldn't ask us. That would actually be kind of a cruel thing, wouldn't it? For God to say, be holy, but it's not really possible. <laughs> and then to call us his disciples would be another step of, of cruelty because the word disciple means you can be like me. When Jesus called a disciple, he wasn't just saying be a, a simple follower. He was saying to that person, you can do anything that I can do. You can be exactly like me. It's why Peter stepped out of the boat. He saw Jesus walking on the water and said, that's my rabbi. And he called me to be his disciple. And if he can walk on water, then so can I. And that's the interesting thing here, that Jesus calls us to be his disciples. Therefore, we can be. He calls us to be holy. Therefore, we can be. So Paul's challenge to family near the end of Ephesians is a call to holiness. In the most real and genuine place that exists, our homes. It's called a holiness in our homes. Because holiness is going to hit you where you live. This Jesus thing, it goes beyond the way we treat strangers. In fact, I don't know about you, but I sometimes find it easier to present holiness to strangers (laughs) than I do at home. And that's because home is one of the most difficult places. We're going to look at the scripture. Let's, let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to start at verse 21, which I think is key point to our beginning. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Remember that statement. He first starts with submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, you know why I didn't want to get to it. All right. <laughs> for uh, So, start again. For wives, this means... Uh, Wait a minute. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the, as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it. Just as Christ cares for the church and we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And this is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife and as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents. You belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will live. You will have a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up 
with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. A weighty portion of scripture that hits us where we live. In just a few short paragraphs, Paul brings down the whole weight of holiness onto the family. And he's talking about, um, in this book of Ephesians, how to live holy lives. And now he's getting to the end and he says, do it at home. Do it at home. And so my premise tonight is that in our real families, in our real families, this is the ideal place to practice genuine holiness. Your real family, this is where... You can practice genuine holiness. And it's not just any place. It's the ideal place to practice it. Why? Because home is actually a place where you can be real and let your guard down. Right? Home is where you are the real you. We want that to be the case. I mean, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking there's this tendency to say, well, yeah, but home's where I get to put my hair down or I get to take off the masks or let out your stink or uh, just be yourself. That's a polite way of putting it, isn't it? Um, Or put on your sweats, you know, those clothes that your wife would kill you if you ever wore in public or vice versa. Um, You know, it's the place where we can be real, where we can be real. But that's exactly who God is interested in. God's not actually interested in the version of you that you might put on in in public he's interested in the real you the one that your family sees right when you're tired or you're hungry or you're frustrated my week was not so ideal car wouldn't start snowblower gas line was frozen uh the kids wanted well two weeks ago the kids wanted to watch umizumi not the uh world junior hockey tournament all day long um it was, it was uh, in fact, when I got home one day, first thing, uh, as I walked in the door, first thing Nia said to me is, Daddy, please don't watch hockey. <laughs> I've been watching, I've been making up for eight years of not having hockey. And, um, the point is, our family is watching, they see us, they know us, they, they experience things. Okay, let me tell you a story. Have you ever, have you ever experienced that, that moment of fright when a backseat driver suddenly yells out an alarm because they see something coming and they want you to be careful. They don't want to get in an accident. Have you ever experienced that? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, the adrenaline and the, like, the sudden panic, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we, whether we welcome it or not, if it avoids an accident, that's great. You know, I'll actually, I'm totally okay with that. If you do that and I, it saves me from an accident, you know, God bless you. I appreciate that. I want to tell you a story about driving out of our church parking lot in New Zealand one day. And um, I asked Amy if I could tell a story. But we were driving out and we were pulling out of the parking lot. And suddenly Amy like let out this exclamation. And I was just, I was, I thought for sure she was trying to warn me of something. I slam on the brakes and I'm just like, you know, adrenaline's going on. I look around and nothing. No cars. No, I, I just went, don't do that. You scare me. I was, I was mad. I was like, I was so frightened by it. And it was, and, you, know, you know what? The car window that never worked suddenly went down and woo, you know. Uh, I took it the wrong way. I won't blame her. Uh, but it was just one of those moments, you know, where I was frightened and I responded out of frustration. And I, I just, I kind of blurted out, don't do that. You scared me. Nothing vulgar, nothing but a little bit of anger, frustration. So we kind of, I took a deep breath and we drive on. 
couple minutes, couple, not even a minute down the road, I hear, Mommy, don't do that. Scared me. <laughs> in a girl's voice. I can't, I'm, you know, I'm not an impressionist. But Naya, at about two years old, for the next 10 minutes straight was, Mommy, don't do that. Scared me. Mommy, don't do just berating like and, and calling out Amy over. And I was just sheepishly going, oh, man, my kids listen to everything I say now. She's old enough to, to hear the frustration, the anger. And even though it was a small thing and Amy understood it, Naya didn't get it. And I realized they're watching. And man, as they get older, they're watching. They're watching everything I do. So the family, this is, this is the ideal place, right? This is the ideal training ground. And what better place to practice obedience? What better place to learn to love? What better place to show grace and mercy and forgiveness and to become like Christ than family? Thanks. What better place, right? Now, here's the thing. God knew that, Right? Oh, we're, not, we're not thinking for one minute that God didn't have that in mind when he created family. In fact, a Christian writer in the 17th century, this is not a new idea with me. He said, marriage might be the toughest testing ground for holiness you could ever undertake. Marriage might be the toughest testing ground. In fact, he said, the state of marriage is one that requires more virtue and constancy than any other. And it is a perpetual exercise of 17th century mortification, (laughs) which is a 17th century way of saying it's a perpetual exercise of dying to self, of sacrificing self. I want to talk to you a little bit about this principle, but one of my favorite books, the best book on marriage, in my opinion, is called Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. And in it, he says this, he says, any situation... That calls me to confront my selfishness has enormous spiritual value. Marriage. Any situation that calls me to confront my selfishness, family does that. And so what if God said, it isn't good for man to be alone because when we're not, or sorry, then we're not forced to confront our selfishness. What if the unity of, of relationships and marriage was, was because it was a situation that calls us to confront our selfishness? What if God didn't design marriage or family life to be easier? What if that wasn't the point? What if the point of marriage, what if the point of family, what if God's real purpose wasn't happiness but holiness? <laughs> Thank you. I think there's a lot of people out there frustrated with their family life because they have the wrong expectation. That it's supposed to be ideal. That it's supposed to be this wonderful, easy, comfortable life. But God is not, I don't believe God is asking us to find that in in our families. I think he's asking us to learn holiness. What if his real plan was not our comfort, but our character? You learn in fairy tales from a young age, although they're, they're starting to change it, right? You know, with Frozen and all that. But you learn in fairy tales of the, the happily ever after line. You know, after the wedding, it says, and they lived happily ever after. That's the kind of, I still think that we, we think we're living in a fairy tale 
land, but real life is not that. It's real, especially in the church, in our faith, real life is a journey toward holiness in the toughest environment amongst the people who know all your secrets, who know you inside out, who smell your stink. (laughs) What better place to learn patience than with your children? What better place to learn forgiveness than with your spouse? What better place to learn humility than with those who see the ugly side of you? But do we see it that way? Well, my point, my first point is that genuine holiness today begins at home because it's where the real you resides. That's where the real you is, and that's the you that God wants to work on. So how then, uh, how then do we do it? What's, what's the process? What, is, what does genuine holy interaction look like? Well, now we're going to get into the scriptures that we read earlier just a little bit. Because your real family is the ideal place to learn this principle Paul talks about of mutual submission. Submission is a real popular word, isn't it? Everybody loves the word submission. And, but this whole entire passage is about submission. But the key word I want to, I want to stress is the mutual. I, you know, I overemphasized the first verse that I read for one simple reason. is because it validates and, and clarifies the whole rest of that section of scripture. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's not a command just for family. That's a command for all believers to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And therefore applies to each and every one of us in our relationship. My aunt... Um, stormed out of my sister's wedding in a huff, really upset because of this passage of Scripture, which is part of the reason I've kind of avoided it. Um, Because I'll never forget, I was 15 years old, and she just stormed out angry, saying wives should submit to their husbands. And she was angry, not a believer, and just said, this is not okay. But she only heard one line. She only heard that one line. And it's not until you understand the mutuality of submission that he's talking about here that you start to make sense of this passage of Scripture. Because Paul began in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then as he goes on and we look at these, Paul's opening words, they apply to each of the following statements. And in verse 22, he says, for wives, brackets are... On the next slide, please. The, the mutual submission part, that's my addition, but for wives means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So Paul's saying, when you're, you're, your job of mutual submission looks like this. And then he says, for husbands, mutual submission means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. By the way, that's one of the most beautiful and amazing acts of submission in all human history. It is the most Right, So the, the submission characteristic applies to husbands as well. And then children, um, mutual submission means obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. So what is mutual submission? It's, it's a mutual submitting to one another. Understanding our roles in life and where we fit. Children, you know, obeying your parents. And, and he, he's talking about kind of where, especially in a cultural setting in his day, where wives fit in that culture. But he even goes on to talk about slaves. And he's not saying slavery is okay. He's saying slaves, because you're in this situation, be obedient to your masters. But what is mutual submission? I like to put it this way. It's each of us striving to put the needs of others first. And it's a fight for last place. Mutual submission is when we fight each other for last place. 
Have you ever tried to walk through a door and it happens? This, this is such a Canadian thing. But it happens, you know, you go and you go and you open that door and the winter door. So you got two doors, right? You open one door and you see someone coming out. So you hold the door for them. And what do they do? They saw you coming in. So they held the door for you. And you're standing there going, you first. Uh, no, you first. And it's this kind of awkward, like, it's, that's mutual submission. You're saying, hey, you know, you go ahead. I want, I'm, I'm letting you through. And, and, and it's kind of a bit awkward, but it's a good illustration of what we're talking about. And, and it can get a little bit funny, but Christian submission comes from an attitude of loving concern for one another or caring about each other. It's not a selfishness, but a selflessness from both sides. So this Christ-like love that we're talking about, what, what I love about it is this strips submission of its humiliation and gives us an opportunity to serve each other. To get that Christ-like love strips submission of its humiliation and, and, and it becomes like Jesus. In fact, Jesus gave us a great example of this when he washed his disciples' feet. His disciples were his students. He was the teacher, the rabbi, and they... Couldn't even grasp that he would get down on his knees and take this lowly position of a servant and wash their feet. But that's what mutual submission looks like. When the God of of all creation would, would bow down and wash the dirty feet of those he was teaching. I like to explain mutual submission like this. I'm going to use a graphic to help me. And it's first we'll look at God's way. And, uh, we got this family of six. And if you look at it, this is, this is the ideal, right? I, did I say, I didn't say that. This is, <laughs> this is the mutual submission in action. He says, there's one on the end saying, I need help. And what do the rest say? I've got your back. I'm here. I'm praying for you. You're not alone. I love you. They're supportive. They, they come alongside each other. The, the number here is five to one. Remember that. The next one, the next one looks like this. It's when we look out for number one, we do it the human way. It's me first. And, and it's all of us looking for our own needs. It says, I need help. Or as soon as I get help, no one even notices my pain. Me first. Someone's saying, I guess I'm last. And why doesn't anyone care about what I'm going through? But this is, this is the picture of kind of the worldly way and the human way we go about this. But if you can go back to the last one. What, what I want us to understand here is that there's, there's some really important math going on. When we are submissive to one another, when we are mutually submissive to each other, I don't know how many people are here, but the ratio is very, very good in our favor. If all of Christ's body support one another, and there's only one person in this room that's not looking out for you, and that's you. But when it's me first. There's only one person in this room looking out for you, and that's you. Do you get the difference? God's way is mutual submissiveness, not looking out for number one. I don't want a one-to-one ratio. I don't want that. Now, again, there's no ideal family. You're not going to necessarily have everybody following this principle, but we need to, and we need to be onto it as quick as we can. So God's way to practice submission at home is tough. Um, and it, he wants us to practice at home because it's tough, because it's the hard place to do it. Because I think if you can do this at home, you can probably do it most anywhere. Some people are hard to be submissive to. Don't don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, there's some difficult ones out there, but this is where God's challenging us to be. But where else are our children going to learn this principle than at home? 
if my, parent, my, my children, I mean, don't see me being submissive and loving to my wife, then where will they learn that? I know for a fact as a youth pastor that parents have way higher impact on the lives of their students than I ever will. Much, much higher. And that there's statistics out there. I don't know. I don't, they're older and I'm not going to quote numbers. But the point is, it's extremely high that parents have much more impact on their children than I ever will. It's not, not even close. I can't, I can't correct all the things that are not being taught at home. So mutual submission is the art of being last. And the family is the ideal place to practice putting others first. I mean, I don't think I need to convince you of that, right? The family is the perfect place to practice putting people first. And I believe God will be honored by your humility and your family will be made better for it. So, the real family is the ideal place to learn mutual submission, but it's also the ideal place to learn and practice unconditional love. Unconditional love. Because loving others... Apart from loving God is the greatest command of God. Now, sometimes when you read that passage, the wives submit to your husband's part stands out. But as a man, when I read the husband part, I'm blown away. Because if you look at what Paul is saying that husbands must live up to, It's pretty, pretty lofty. The standard of love that men are to express to their wives is the highest possible standard that Paul could ever describe. He goes on to describe just, well, look at it. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. We're we're to have the same love that Christ had for the church, for our wives. What what a a mind-blowing amount of love that God's calling us to have. He's calling us to love unconditionally, to love perfectly, to have an unfailing love, like he describes in 1 Corinthians 13. So what Paul is saying is that true love is the giving up of self for the benefit of another. Because that's what Jesus did, didn't he? He gave up himself for the benefit of all. And so true love that that Paul's asking us to do, I mean, Jesus did that on the cross when he submitted to the will of God. And that kind of love is a love of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And Paul knew the truth of the matter that we need to love. We need to experience unconditional love in the family. Your real family is the best place, I believe. And Paul's saying the best place for you to practice this I want to talk about Micah 6.8. You can look it up later. It says, to love mercy. I love that phrase, to love mercy. The truth is the fact that you married a sinner, you'll give birth to sinners. So our attitude toward another person's sin will determine the degree of intimacy that we can have with them. Think about that for a minute. The people in our homes, they're not... They're not perfect. They're not ideal. And our attitude toward another person's sin will determine how much intimacy we can have with them. Because judgment, that repels intimacy. But grace, grace welcomes it. Grace welcomes it. I want to talk about this loving mercy for a minute. Loving mercy means I'm the biggest fan of grace and forgiveness. There's a difference between forgiveness that is... 
a grudging acceptance for what you've done, and I'll, I'll let you off the hook. But man, I don't know. <laughs> I wish you'd blow a tire on the way home. You know, like there's, there's just some kind of like, you know, that kind of, I'll forgive if I have to, but man, I'm clenching my teeth and angry about it. That's, that's not what he's talking about. When he says love mercy, he's talking about a joyful acceptance of an acceptance joyfully of the pain and the hurt that another person has brought into your life. You know what we're joyful about? We're joyful that they've been set free. We're joyful that they can be forgiven. That's, that's loving mercy. Forgiveness is letting go of the right that you have for justice in your life. Forgiveness is letting go of the right you have for justice. It's saying, it's okay. I accept what has happened. Not only accept it, but I love that you've been set free. I love that God sets us free. God's, God loves mercy. God loves setting people free, amen? I mean, what a, how exciting has it been to see people being set free week after week here as they come in and hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. We, we get excited about that because God loves setting people free. And we talk about how there's a party in heaven every time someone is set free. Well, we need to have that same attitude at home. When we forgive one another, we need to love mercy. We need to love mercy like Jesus did. And it's a difficult thing. I, I get it. This is hard stuff. But God loves mercy enough to send his son. And he calls us to do the same. So Paul is saying husbands should love by forgiving their wives. And in so doing, set the example of loving mercy for the family to follow. So the mandate of love from, on husbands here is so immense. I love a story I heard about a wife who got into a car accident in a brand new car. And you can just imagine the feeling, right? Frantic and worried about what her husband would say. Um, she was very, very upset. But then she reached in the glove compartment to get the paperwork, to get out the insurance card. And she found a handwritten note attached that said, Dear Mary, when you need these papers, remember it's you that I love, not the car. Yeah, I, I was like, I was like, I had, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's really cool. That's, that's such a neat story. And I, I, I had Amy know that heard, you know, we talked about, well, I always talk about my messages with Amy and stuff. So I was like, I had to blow this one. I couldn't, I was like, that's such a great idea. I wanted to take it for myself. <laughs> and I wanted to, but, but the thing is, Amy knows I don't really care about our cars. So, um, but I def, definitely love her more than that. So we're good. But the fact of the matter is that, uh, that Jesus loves mercy, and we need to love mercy, and he set us free from our sin. And in, in your home, you're going to have so many chances to practice unconditional love. You're going to have so many chances to love mercy that it's going to be something you can do on a regular basis. So unconditional love, what does unconditional love do? It displays God's love for mercy. And your real family is the ideal place to show sinful people mercy and grace. We're almost done. I want us to think about... This is tough. Because home is the hardest place. 
Home is this, this battleground, this training ground that I think, that, that, like that 17th century author said, it's, it's a very difficult testing ground for our faith and for our hope. But I love Paul's idealism. I love that Paul says holiness is a real thing and you can have it. You can have it in your home. I don't know about you, but I want to be a person of holiness in my home. I want to accept the call to be holy at the most real level. But I'm not always very good at that. I struggle with things at times and I have to learn and grow. In fact, there's, there's a challenge being a preacher, right? I have to live up to this. And my wife's sitting right here and she's, <laughs> she's hearing that I want to be holy and, I, and she sees me. She knows me and I have to, I have to live up to that. But what would, what would our families be like if we did that? What would our families be like if we accepted the call to be holy at that most real level? Not just when people outside the home can see us, but at home. And what would happen if we fought for the last place and showed mutual submission to one another? What would happen if that's what our homes were like? And what would happen if we showed unconditional love and we fell in love with mercy? we rejoiced in the chances to forgive one another as Christ did for us. What would that look like? Would our homes be ideal? Probably not. That's not not what we're talking about. But that it would be the ideal place for you to grow and become more like Christ. That's what I want to see. I want to see our homes be that ideal place to grow and become like Christ. You're going you're gonna to have struggles. It's going to be difficult. And it's going to take a whole lot of honesty and a whole lot of tears and a whole lot of, of, of apologies. But what a beautiful thing it will be.